This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith Fam, we have with us best-selling author and professor of the social studies of science and technology at MIT, the incomparable Sherry Turkle, and we're going to talk today about memory. So we've been talking about the book of Deuteronomy these last few weeks, which is, among other things, one of the greatest works of political thought in history. And one of the major questions that drives the entire book in this regard is what makes a society success and what causes a society to fail? Now, the intuitive answer to that question is that success or failure are determined based on how a society responds to failure, to challenges. So when things are tough, how resilient is a society? How does society rise to the challenge? But Deuteronomy's genius, by contrast, is in adopting the very opposite position. So the ancient Israelites have already struggled with poverty and scarcity. The real challenge actually lies ahead. When the people enter a land flowing with milk and honey, and so in the midst of such bounty, as things get easier, as progress happens, as old challenges fall away, how does a society or a nation respond? That is Deuteronomy's central question. Does success become an opportunity for humility and gratitude, an appreciation of all the goodness we've been given, a revitalization of community, a commitment to using our success in pursuit of greater virtue and compassion? Or... Does it become an opportunity for self-aggrandizement, for putting ourselves at the root of our own success? Or perhaps even worse, does success, or more accurately, the lack of existential challenges, induce civilizational boredom and cause us as citizens to begin sniping at each other, to detach from each other in the hope of finding excuses to fight, to revitalize ourselves? So in other words, what Deuteronomy anticipated long before social theorists like Tocqueville in the 19th century, Fukuyama in the 20th, or Ross Douthit or Tyler Cowen in the 21st, is that the toughest challenge a society will need to negotiate, the one that's going to determine if it stands the test of time, is how it responds not to poverty, but to progress. And living as we do in the digital age, an era of amazing technological efflorescence and poised in the wake of, you know, pandemic-induced innovation to potentially enter yet a new era of innovation, this question, how to deal with the moral and cultural implications of our progress, is more urgent than ever. So to think about this, I brought on one of the most brilliant thinkers writing on this topic today. She's the Abby Rockefeller Mose Professor of the Social Studies of Science and Technology at MIT, author of numerous bestsellers, and most recently, a stunning memoir called The Empathy Diaries. She is Sherry Turkle. Sherry, thanks so much for being here. It's my pleasure. So you've become extremely well-known as basically, I guess I'd call an ethnographer of the digital era, right? You're out there studying other people and how they use our machines. And you've always been the one holding up a mirror to the rest of us, you know, helping to show us what we're actually doing and what we're trading off when we open our laptops or pick up our phones. But your latest book, Empathy Diaries, is a memoir. And it's absolutely fantastic. I said to you right before the podcast, it was like the best mystery novel I've read this year, to be honest. But what made you decide to turn the mirror back on yourself? Well, I think that all my life I've been fascinated by the question, what is there about studying empathy, about studying the way digital technology cuts off conversations and undermines empathy? What is there about that problem that has so gripped me 
I mean, people who read my books know that this isn't my job. <laughs> this is my, <laughs> you know, this is my calling. I mean, if you ask me, you know, how I feel about. I host the Bible podcast, so I'm with you. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, if you ask me, well, what do I think of robots who do psychotherapy? You know, I'm lit. I'm ready to tell you why that's, you know. <laughs> and of course, the answer is that they have no basis to be empathic. They don't have bodies. They don't die. They don't have children. What's to be empathic about? So I wanted to write a book that I've always wanted to read, which is what is there about a person's life that sets them up to do impassioned work? Because I knew there was this deep connection between my life and my work. And I, I truly wanted to explore that. I wanted to talk about my grandparents, about my mother, about the secrets that she made me keep, which led to a fascination in secrets and digging and unearthing things. I wanted to talk about being marginal as a child because I had to keep a secret and thus being able to see things that only marginal people can see. I wanted to talk of all of these things. And I waited until the time of my life when I felt I could do this. Like what did Wordsworth say? Rec recollection and tranquility. I mean, where I felt I could do it justice, where I wasn't trying to get back at anybody or, you know, it wasn't settling scores. I was just making this case that the work and the life are entwined. And so that's the story of the book. And so as you just said, one of the central themes of Empathy Diaries is the often debilitating effects of secret keeping between generations. Yes. Now, this is like a no spoilers podcast, right? So a major plotline, which I don't want to spoil because it's like bananas. So just to set it up without spoiling it, you grow up without your father. Your mother actually takes you away from your father, like in the dead of night, as it were. Yes. And you have no idea why. And she never tells you. And a lot of what you're doing in the book is recording your investigation into what actually happened there. And it's really dramatic. I don't want to spoil it. But the premise of the whole tale is really that while you're living with this big family, your grandparents, your mother, your aunt, you're really alone in a sense because everyone's keeping all these extremely important secrets from you and each other. And this struck me so sharply because I think on the one hand, people have this association with with tradition and the older generation in America is being encouraging of secrets, right? Of being closed off. And you're kind of in this traditional Lower East Side Jewish environment where that's definitely the case. But on the other hand, this feels so foreign and weird to me as someone deeply like invested in tradition and religion. So like if you open a Bible, it's airing its heroes, dirty laundry all over the place, yes. right? Like, you know, it's talking about King David's marital affairs. Yes. Right. Same thing for the Talmud, right? In a Jewish context. So there's this one, there's this like crazy story where one of the major rabbinic figures in the Talmud sneaks under his rabbi's bed so that he can, you know, learn about the, the you know, the biblical and rabbinic values of marital relations. Like, it's, again, it's a crazy story. So, like, to the extent that tradition is so powerful, I think precisely because it seeks to help explain the whole world around us, right? So you'd think, and I think it's been the case for, for most of traditional history, you'd think that more traditional folks would be more open to talking about everything and anything. And yet, I think in like mid-century, 20th century America, we do end up with this generation of like closed off secret keepers. So how did we get there? Well, in the Jewish community that I lived in in Brooklyn, there they had a stint on the Lower East Side. Actually, I have dishes that were given to my grandmother on her wedding day in 1898 
that were her most precious possessions from when they lived on the Lower East Side. They were amazing. But by the time my story takes place, we're living in Brooklyn. And uh, we're living in a very traditional Jewish community where divorce was simply something that did not happen. It was a shanda, it was a shame. Right. And my mother was determined that this divorce did not happen and somehow could be hidden if she could marry very quickly after her divorce and have me use her new husband's name. So although my legal name was Sherry Zimmerman, that was my biological father's name, I used that name in school and wrote it down on all my papers. About 20 times a day, I wrote Sherry Zimmerman. I would go home and there I was Sherry Turkle so we could be one big happy family and the secret could be hidden. And some of the book really talks about the effect on a family. Not only didn't we talk about this, but it was completely forbidden to even acknowledge that I had another father. I mean, it was something that was just off limits because the mere acknowledgement of him meant I could ask questions. Where is he? I want to see him. What? Who? And so I think that it's not ironic, it's almost predictable that I become, first of all, someone who studies psychoanalysis, the er, <laughs> you know, secret, right. secret unearthing discipline. But then also I go into a field, which as you said in the, in the introduction so correctly, is kind of uh, ethnography, you know, going into a culture, going into a situation, asking questions, how exactly did this happen and what's your relation to this and what's your family relationship? My expertise becomes studying the kinds of things that were completely forbidden in my own family. I actually want to talk about precisely that. Your area of expertise is sort of the digital world and what it does to us, right? Yes. Because you are, I guess what we can come back to it, but you're kind of thrown into this world where your past is kind of taken away from you mm-hmm. or at least hidden from you. And so you're thrown into the present and really the future. And that's become the major theme of your work is studying, well, what are we doing in this present and future and what is it doing to us? Right. But as I've read all of your books, which I've really loved, one thing that struck me, and especially as a parent, when I think about this for my own kids, right? So we talk about screen time, for example, as if it's a new thing. But screens have been one of, if not the dominant forces in our lives for like 100 years now, right? Since the invention of the television. As I was thinking about this conversation, I think what's really changed is how screens shape us, right? And what they're meant to do. Yes. So like in the age of television, screens were places where people could see imagination come to life. So screens gave us this sense that anything was possible if only we could imagine it. But in the digital age, our screens actually do something very different. They're keepers of all knowledge. So they don't tell us that anything is possible. They tell us that everything has already been thought of already. And therefore, the most important thing is not to think of new things, but to think the right things. And I think that's kind of where you see a lot of the pushes for kind of conformity that the digital age today encourages. So like, how do we cope? Well, more than that. Yeah, yeah. One of the big themes of the book is that I become a student of empathy, not because empathy was shown me, since it's not empathic not to tell a child about her father, but because here were these people who deeply loved me. I'm surrounded by love when my mother leaves my biological Right, you have this big, thick family. Uh, yes, of love. Right. And yet they're behaving in this crazy way. I'm not allowed to use my name. And I have to become a kind of mind reader 
of what they could possibly be thinking in order to accept their love, be in this family. I become a kind of Nancy Drew of my own life, trying to be a detective of what what could these people be thinking to deny me this? So it's a study of how you can develop empathy when it is not shown to you. And also to your point about screens, it's a study of how in a loving, communicative family, because we were communicative about everything else except my past, we argued politics, we argued McCarthy hearings. I remember my grandmother, my coming home one day from school and my grandmother saying to me, I'm reading about the Belgian Congo. Is it good or bad for the Jews? I mean, you know, she, was, <laughs> she, she was a talker. I mean, she wanted to be part. We talked about Eleanor Roosevelt. They wanted me to grow up to be a cross between Nancy Drew and Eleanor Roosevelt, I'm convinced. That's awesome. <laughs> so we watched television together. We spent hours in front of screens. I loved your way of describing it. Talking about what was on the screen. What about that guest? How did he do? What about that thing? What about that political opinion? How about Ed Sullivan? What about the, you know, television was a community event. And it wasn't until I was in like in college or graduate school and I read all these papers about how television was a, a silencing media. I remember raising my hand in class and saying, my family did not get that memo. Wow. In my family for the Bonowitzes, television silenced no one. So what I argue in all of my books, but again in the Empathy Diaries, is what is problematic about screens now, is that you are not allowed a moment of solitude to know who you are so that when you face another person, you can face them knowing who you are and able to say, knowing who you are, who are you? I'd like to hear your story. Because people are so insecure about their own identity that when they face another person, they're like looking to be told who they are. And that to me is the problem with screens. And that's why I hate the screen time thing, because I love, love watching quality television. (laughs) I love writing on my computer. I don't think, I think these are all for the good. But what's bad is sitting across somebody at a table and instead of looking at them, looking down at your phone. That's what kills the capacity for engagement, for learning about another person. It's saying to someone else, I, you know, I cannot see you. I need to go into my world of elsewheres. So I wonder if what's happening, it's, it's so funny because I had like similar experiences, like family watching events. Like for us, it was like Disney movies, yeah. right? But like we would gather around and watch it together. It was a really communal experience. But I wonder, like when I think about what's changed in the digital era. So what the digital era does, because our screens today are keepers of knowledge, and unlike television, which encourages us to think about the future, the possibilities are limitless, everything is just determined by your imagination, our screens today, because they know everything, they actually focus us a lot more on the past. So increasingly we're in an era where you have to account for every single thing you've ever done, where you have to look back on the past and analyze it critically and deconstructively. And I think that can be a a healthy thing So in traditional societies, you're also very focused on the path, right? That's what memory is. But I think the difference is that in these like older traditional societies, memory has a context, right? So there's like an elder telling you a story. People aren't keeping secrets like elders are storytellers, right? They're telling you about your past. And that gives you a way to look at the past and find identity there and answer the question, who am I? 
the world that we're in now, as you're just describing, is one where we're asked to look at the past relentlessly, but there's no context for it. There's no elder, there's no guide, there's no context. It's not memory, it's just history. And so I wonder if, though, in the same way, what happened in the television era, right? So, like, the digital era is a consequence of where, like, community has been destroyed and all we have left is knowledge of the past, and it's, like, really hard to deal with. But is it possible that in the television era we were kind of just like mooching off of like thick American community. Like, do you feel that television encouraged people to experience it communally? Or was it just that we were used to doing things communally anyway? And so when television comes along for the first couple of decades, we experience that communally like we do everything else. And now that we've kind of let community dissipate and disappear, we're stuck in the digital era where now, unlike in the television era, we have the technology that's pulling us apart, but we don't have the community to help mitigate those effects. That is such a great question, because I think that the water cooler effect that you had from early television, where television was the event, and then you talked about its wonders, which is only now being replicated in certain circles when HBO Max puts on something, and everybody in my circle is talking about Kate Winslet and Mayor of Easton and Perry Mason. And I mean, you know, you can get a little burst of that in contemporary streaming. But I think that was, in a way, building on the traditional communities that Americans still had. They went to work. Their work was kind of a second home. They had communities at work. They socialized with the people at work. They had communities in their neighborhoods. They had communities at their places of worship. So television and what people saw at television and on television was integrated, as you say, into those communities and became the subject of conversation in those communities. I think what I'm trying to point to now is not just the alone together. I named one of my books on this topic, Alone Together. You know, there's sort of isolation of the digital. It's fantastic also. Everyone go get it. But this other point about solitude and empathy, that it's creating a new psychology of the self itself. Because when we have a moment of reverie, We are snapped out of that moment of reverie by the incoming on our screens and sort of told there's no room for that moment of reverie. Go to your screen, answer your mail, respond, respond, respond. And we are asked by Facebook, by social media to create a sort of avatar of yourself on Instagram. It's heartbreaking in a way. Because people are struggling to create a sense of themselves that is seeing beautiful things, that is seeing beautiful objects, that is having a moment in Central Park, that is eating a beautifully arranged salad. And then we have to live up to these self-presentations. I was once going to call one of my books called The Computer and the Digital Life, The Intimate Machine, because in addition to all of these societal effects you're pointing to, it's something that comes so close, so intimately into our everyday presentation of self. It's my point, and in the Empathy Diaries, you see why it's my point, why empathy is so important. We desperately need empathy in order to understand each other, in order to talk to each other. You see this inability to make a point, be respected for a point, respect another person's point. In our democracy now, which is the basis of democracy, Joseph Biden just gave a speech in which he said empathy is the fuel of democracy. 
And what he meant by that was before you can start a democracy, you have to say, I want to hear you. I don't know what you are thinking. Let me know what you're thinking. And then I will respect what you're thinking and we'll play by the rules together and we can make something. But if you can't do that first step of shutting up and listening to somebody and being psychologically prepared to hear them and understand their situation, that's not good. And if all you're doing is in a moment of silence, is not looking within, but looking to your screen, somebody else telling you how you should be, you may not get to that place where you can say to someone else, I don't know how you feel. Tell me. I'm here to listen. Wow. So this actually makes me think of a passage in the histories by the great Roman historian Tacitus. He was one of the great Roman writers of the first century. And one of the things that he does for his readers is whenever the empire comes into contact with outsiders, he kind of describes them. He, I mean, he's an ethnographer, in many ways a fantastical one, but, but he's an ethnographer of sorts. When he comes into contact with the Jews in sort of like first century AD land of Israel, he accuses them of laziness because this is a people who one entire day a week, they just don't work and they spend time with each other. That idea was the Sabbath, and he thought they were barbarians for it. Here in the digital age, is the idea of the Sabbath underrated? Oh, yes. Yes. There are movements to have a tech Shabbat, actually, where the Sabbath becomes also a day. You know, if you're a religious Jew, you would naturally turn off your devices. And this new movement says you don't need to be religious to have the pleasures, to have the Sabbath. And as a matter of fact, no matter what your religious practice, Take off Saturday, take off that day, and turn off your devices and make it a day when you experience life without this constant incoming, without this constant distraction, not just from your work, but from who you are. Because again, empathy begins in solitude. You have to know who you are and have some sense of, you know, being okay with that, of being able to have a moment of silence within yourself so that you can turn to somebody else and say, I'm here for you, tell me about you. Because if not, it's an inauthentic gesture because you're really asking them to help you fill in the pieces of your, you don't know who you are, you're wondering if maybe you can take little bits and pieces of them. And I really endorse the idea of, even if you spread your tech Shabbat out over after seven o'clock, every night of the week or after five o'clock or after nine o'clock. I mean, there should be a time when you create sacred spaces. I very much believe in sacred spaces where you are not using your phone, where you're not looking outwards to find out who you are, but in cultivating that capacity for solitude, for knowing who you are so that then you can be in more genuinely mutual relationships with other people. So my last question for you is I, I want to go back to your relationship or lack thereof with your father that you talk about in the Empathy Diaries. From a certain perspective, I think like if this were the 90s, the story that you experience, it's like the dream scenario, right? You're like Ariel without King Trident, right? Like you don't have your father controlling you. You can be whoever you want to be. You can be self-made. You can choose any past that you want. You don't have anything that's really binding you. You know, if I'm thinking, let's say, in kind of a context that I'm familiar with, I think this was sort of like the dream 
of like the early kind of like secular Zionist pioneers of the state of Israel, like we're new Jews, right? Like all of the history of the past 2000 years and the diaspora is useless to us. We can kind of like cut it away and choose our own destiny. We just had on the podcast a couple of episodes ago, my friend Michael Brendan Doherty, who wrote a wonderful book called My Father Left Me Ireland, where he also, he grows up without his father. And it's kind of like a source of pain to him as he becomes a father in his own right, because what he realizes is that contrary to sort of the the myth of unending happiness when you cut off your past, not having a past, not having a parent, even though his father is a very challenging figure and read the Empathy Diaries, there is something to having a past that's your own. And from your vantage point, as someone who finds out something pretty earth-shattering on this journey about your father, so do you see this as a correction that it's worth making for our society? Like there is something to having a past that is your own, a tradition that is your own? Yes, yes. I think that the people who think that you know, not having the presence of the constraining father or mother figure, the burden of the interdictions uh, will lead to greater freedom, greater creativity, a better life. I think they underestimate actually the lives creative people who, when faced with those interdictions, grappled with them, fought against them, and carved out who they needed to be. Not having those parents not having those guardrails, not having those real people leads to something else, which is even more, in my case, more limiting, which is you imagine the people who are missing out of your head, out of your own imagination and needs and wants and fears and fantasies, and you create versions of them that hold you back because you're seeking versions of people who don't exist I mean, I remember once going out with a great philosopher who couldn't believe that he was born to this kind of lower middle class Brooklyn family who were, you know, barely literate. And here he is, you know, this famous, beautiful man. And he he, he imagined that he'd been switched at birth with Prince Charles or something like that. And he It's like the opening of Henry the Fourth and Shakespeare. Yeah, it's like, I yeah, wish. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And it, it was kind of like it was such a limit on him. It was such a limitation because he was always imagining that he wasn't in the right place, that he was someone else. And in my case, not knowing what my father had done, was he a criminal? Was he a madman? Was he an abuser? What could he have done? Definitely preoccupied me more than the truth would have told empathically. Even though the truth was shocking, the truth was tellable. And I think that I came out of this experience thinking that the truth should always be tellable. You know, there are ways to tell every truth so that it doesn't do harm, because it is the truth. Amen. I love it. Amen. So I think that, no, I think that this romantization of the liberated from your parents, the way to liberate yourself from your parents is it begins in adolescence and you start to push back and then you push back. And then often by the time you're 50 and, you know, you read great biography and you see that this pushing back can go through a life. But that's, I think, what healthy creativity and new creativity comes from. It comes from pushing back against the past. For example, I grew up in the shadow of the Holocaust. And my grandparents, I was the designated adult 
Because when somebody knocked on the door, my grandparents would sit on the couch. My grandmother would clutch her purse. It was almost as though the the shadow of all those Jews who had been taken when there was a knock on the door hovered over our family and I would go to the door. So the history of that recent Holocaust past weighed on me, but I was a different generation and had different possibilities than my grandparents had. And so we're able to do different things with that memory. They were still so frightened. You know, they sat on the sofa. I opened the door and faced the plumber. (laughs) (laughs) But then later, you know, I went out and I got a scholarship to Harvard and I went out into the world. To me, it was the same thing. It took as much bravery. You know, so I think having the past to face and facing it is always the right way and telling your children the truth. Wow. Unbelievable. This has been Sherry Turkle. The book is The Empathy Diaries. Sherry, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. We often think of keeping secrets or not talking about certain things as a feature of tradition or traditional religion, but historically, this has never been the case. Whether it's the Bible, the Talmud, Thomas Aquinas, or any other great resource for tradition, faith has always aspired to make meaning, to make sense of every element of our lives. We want to talk about everything. It doesn't mean we have no underlying values or wisdom guiding our conversations. We shouldn't even want to lose those things. But what it does mean, and what tradition has and should once again stand for, is just what Sherry said. The truth should always be tellable, and our job is to tell the truth virtuously and faithfully. Anyway, thank you so much for joining me today. And if you like what you heard, then here's what you do. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you do, and if you review us on iTunes, then let me know on Twitter so I can let the world know that you are amazing. All right, that's it for now. This is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lam and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.